0: from Kirkco Media.
1: So what you gonna do about it?
2: Now we continue our uncharted tour through these pandemic times, described best by my daughter who suggested we just unplug 2020 and plug it back in again, rebooting this virus-infected year. Welcome to Politics: Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. This is part 2 of our continuing look at the law, the constitution and this remarkable time we're navigating ourselves through or staggering through in a blind drunkenness, depends on your perspective. Allow me to introduce our panel. Firstly, connecting through Zoom, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, and worldwide lecturer, Professor Ed Larson. Nice to
1: see you again, Ed. Nice to see you, Bill, and I'm so looking forward to talking with Bruce, one of the great names in legal academics. Also Zooming in, Jane Albrecht, an
2: international trade attorney who has represented U.S. interests to high level government officials all over the world. She's also been involved with several US presidential campaigns. Jane, nice to remotely see you as well.
3: Always good to see you, Bill, and delighted to be here with Bruce Ackerman.
2: Well, joining by Zoom, our special guest today, as you may have heard, Bruce Ackerman. He is a Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale Law School, He's an American constitutional law scholar and the author of 19 books in political philosophy, constitutional law, and public policy. His most recent book, published by Harvard University Press, is called Revolutionary Constitutions, which takes us on a world tour of constitutional crises while examining today's assault on one of our favorite discussion topics here at Meet Me in the Middle, Checks and Balances. Welcome, Bruce. Nice to see you zoom in. Well, it's a pleasure. Bruce, you don't describe yourself as a political scientist. You are described as a political philosopher. What is that exactly?
0: Uh, What I've done is to actually spend the time to go through the American constitutional tradition and try to understand how the participants themselves understood things. There's this constant temptation to look back and say, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, this is how it turned out, but it's not clear to them that this is how it's gonna turn out. (laughs) Not at all. It's just as obscure as it is to us. We don't know how it's gonna turn out 10 years from now. We know we have to struggle to try to solve the problems of the 21st century and our government as they reveal themselves to us. Well, that's just the situation the founders were in. The idea that um, this crisis, which is real, is unique in American history, is simply false. The uh, crises of, of the 1960s, in which millions of racist people, not only in the South, but in the United States, uh, mobilized against Brown against Board of Education, the millions in the White Citizens Councils were just as mobilized and numerous as the movements uh, led by martin luther king for civil rights in the 1930s we had dramatic polarization in the uh, crucial election between uh, franklin roosevelt in 1936 uh, and alf landon roosevelt makes a famous speech just before the election condemning these malefactors of great wealth and asserting that we, the people, will not tolerate this. The uh, idea that uh, the 1930s was anything less than this profound confrontation between two polarized ideals of what America should look like, resolved by repeated elections. But the notion that uh, America is just, uh, in the good old days, uh, we uh, just spoke in a civilized manner to one another. No, we have constructed and reconstructed the foundations of our democracy time and again with a good deal of success. And the question is, of course, whether we will manage to do it this time. This is a challenge for every generation. We have, as it were, a revolutionary tradition.
2: Were people more interested in fully knowing the facts at that time? Or were they just as partisan then and heard everything through the filter of their own opinion?
0: The American people of today are by far the most educated population in the history of the world. 99.0% of Americans have high school degrees, to be sure. Many college degrees, many high school degrees are not very good that's qualitatively different from not having any serious education which was our condition only 50 or 75 years ago so we have two sides of this equation one side is we have the most educated capable population for seeing through and analyzing the news on the other side what we have is uh, the crisis of serious journalism the number of serious journalists in the United States who are covering uh, state capitals is virtually
2: non-existent. Why do you feel that that's happened? Why the seriousness of the journalism research has fallen by the wayside?
0: Simple economics. Before the rise of the internet, newspapers around the country were basically financed by want ads. Today, um, they've lost their want ads. Uh, and so the serious journalists, let's say take something like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Which was a great newspaper. They have been wiped out by the internet uh, revolution.
2: Okay, I'd like to dive in a little bit and define a couple of things. Uh, Ed and Jane, is it reasonable for a chief executive during a pandemic to describe himself as a wartime president? The Constitution
1: gives particular powers to a president in wartime because the Constitution makes the president and only the president, commander in chief of the army. And that's a unique distinction that's in in cradled into the constitution. In contrast, the constitution doesn't give the president any particular power whatsoever in a healthcare crisis because the constitution created a federal republic. And when they created that federal republic, certain areas like education and health and safety were primarily afforded to the states. But when you're dealing with individual health care, that has historically been a state issue. And so you don't really have the same sort of idea of a commander in chief, because as we're finding with this pandemic, but you could go back to any other one, like the like the Spanish flu of 1918, it's different in different places. And therefore, one reaction might be appropriate in Alaska or or North Dakota, and another reaction might be appropriate in Georgia or California. And so therefore, it's a classic issue of federalism. But when you have a war effort, you don't say that New York should handle World War II one way, and California should have it in another way. Everyone would immediately see that's just absolutely ridiculous.
2: we understand. Understand that commander in chief of our armed forces, that's a concept we can wrap our arms around. But domestically, what is contemplated as a chief executive power at a time like a pandemic?
3: Essentially when, when Trump calls himself a wartime president, it is to a certain degree and to a great degree symbolic. The degree to which wartime powers in the constitution would kick in is questionable. There are certain areas in the constitution where they, The president is given certain powers in terms of foreign relations. The power to declare war is really in the hands of the Congress. So to me, when he says he's a wartime president, it's mostly symbolic.
2: President Trump declared that when somebody is the president of the United States, their authority is total, they have total power. Yes. Uh, How do you feel about that in this particular circumstances of managing a pandemic? Uh, The bugs are not a war. You don't think so? It seems like a war.
0: Listen, a war is human beings attacking other human beings. This is, as Ed pointed out, a public health emergency. We want to look beyond Trump. Unless we do something constructive on this front, Some future president, two presidents down the line, will feel himself free to intervene in one or another conflict that he thinks is of great importance, which is deeply controversial in the country, and use the acquittal of Trump as a great precedent justifying this.
2: So you're hoping for a more benevolent, law-abiding president. But how does the system, in fact, ensure that we're protected against such things?
0: There's no insurance There was no insurance that the New Deal would be relatively successful. There was no insurance that the Civil Rights Revolution was going to occur. There is no insurance at all. However, there is an opportunity. Trump dramatized to the American people the dangers of this kind of unilateral executive power. And the next president or the president after that will have the opportunity to have, to use a metaphor that Ronald Reagan used and Franklin Roosevelt used, the first hundred days. What should the first hundred days be? What are the really crucial initiatives which we should adopt
2: immediately so as to assure that another set of abuses like those of Trump will not occur? In this case, What is Congress's ability to actually make change that allows anyone who comes into office and assumes the role of king or dictator, what allows us to control that environment? And we're going to talk about that when we come back from this break, because I've got to go call my doctor and see if putting Clorox in my coffee is appropriate. We'll be right back.
0: On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tayback and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco
2: Media.
1: What you gonna do about it?
2: We're back with Ed, Jane, and Bruce. Bruce, you said the primary number one responsibility is to cast your ballot knowing what the issues are and choosing a representative on the basis that they are pursuing the right direction for the future that is how you would describe that responsibility that we have as citizens
0: well you see there are two different dimensions we have the fundamental responsibility to train to educate people to be good citizens by understanding and talking to the other side In your classrooms, civics is no longer a central element in the curriculum. That's a tragedy. Um, American history is no longer at the core of our education. At the present time, we have the homeschooling movement, which makes it virtually impossible to have the child hear the other sides because their parents are teaching
2: them. Are you saying that a primary responsibility of the citizen is to educate each other or to insist that we ourselves get educated?
0: The fundamental obligation of uh, the older generation to the younger generation of citizens is to educate the younger generation to be citizens in the way that I'm describing it. Then, when these people grow up, they have another fundamental obligation, which is the ballot.
2: You are saying that a requirement is to educate ourselves on the issue and cast a ballot accordingly.
0: That's right, and everybody realizes that. If they didn't, they wouldn't show up at the polls at all. The minimal requirement of citizenship is to cast informed vote. The second one is Community service. In the Second World War, it took the the extraordinary form of the draft. One of the most significant things that has changed over the last 50 years is the 1973 decision to eliminate the draft. And the question is whether there's another form of community service uh, that is more appropriate in the 21st century it's those three requirements to educate uh the next generation for citizenship to cast an informed ballot and to recognize your debt to the community in a in a way that's meaningful in the 21st century those are the three fundamental elements uh that we need to uh reconstruct uh in a world where uh journalism has fallen apart uh uh, where uh, the public school system is uh, in disarray and where we don't have a a structure of recognizing in a constructive way how much we owe to being an American.
2: Uh, Bruce, yesterday in our discussion, you were talking about uh, your feeling that there was a disintegration of the constitutional tradition. Tell us what you meant by that.
0: Well, the question is, uh, do we, are we a democracy or are we a plutocracy? Uh, is our uh, politics so dominated by big money that uh, this fundamental right of the citizen to cast his ballot for a change or not change been profoundly undermined by the power of big money? After all, we just see Bloomberg spend a billion dollars of his own money. And the courts have said you have a constitutional right to spend your own money. So we have not only big money, but we have the courts supporting the power of big money. Is there anything we can do? Well, there is. And uh, working with uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A, he and I have uh, worked out a, a statute which has now been He's submitted to uh, for consideration by Congress. What we argue for is this. Every registered voter gets 50 democracy dollars to spend in presidential elections. So each registered voter starts talking to his friends and neighbors. Who should I spend this money for? He can't spend it for anything else.
2: You're still making it a popularity contest. We're making it into an election
0: Each citizen is going to go to the polls and cast his ballot. And now he has an effective way of changing the conversation. The only people who can get this money are people who say, I'm not going to use my own cash. I'm not going to ask people for cash. I'm only going to finance my campaign with democracy dollars.
2: Well, so that seems like a reasonable concept in the situation where you have to bring that to a body of people to vote on who are in power. And those people are in power, perhaps for the wrong reason. Maybe they got their money through special interests or otherwise. How do you convince them to actually vote in a new concept that makes their position weaker?
0: Well, you see, you're simply believing that the status quo is invincible. Let's take the green movement. Environmentalists, they'd love this. They believe in grassroots participation. All the enviros would latch on. So will people who think that the right to bear arms is really fundamental because they think that they will be financed by democracy dollars, by their true believers.
3: But if they've chosen, as many of them have done already, not to participate in the public campaign finance system because it will limit their fundraising in other respects. In other words, they've made the calculation. They think they can raise more without it. What
0: I'm talking about is something that looks like big money compared to what was done before. $50 for every American voter is, uh, after all, $7 billion.
2: I mean, it would be substantial, no doubt. But the question is that the people who are in power got there through being empowered with their own financing methods. And we're asking them to make a change based on the greater good. And generally, we haven't seen a lot of politicians looking to make changes and for the greater good in these days.
0: Well, that's what happened uh, in uh, the 1960s, the 1930s with Ronald Reagan. You're just freezing this moment of status quo, as if it were eternal. If it is, then American democracy dies.
2: Totally agree. And uh, frankly, I would like to see all forms of campaigning with advertising be eliminated the way cigarettes and tobacco has been eliminated I don't think that absolutely there's... not you want ignorant voters no no I what I want is a press that has obligations to do town halls and debates and and constructive education as you described before
0: you cannot obligate media. There's freedom of speech in this
1: country.
2: You used to be able to obligate media because they had licenses bestowed upon them by the FCC, and they could obligate them to a lot of things. That
0: system died in 1984, and what you now suddenly, and I applaud you, suddenly you're saying, aha, there's hope. What we need is elections in which citizens come and say, look, we're going down a disastrous course the same course that is being pursued in Turkey, in Japan, in Brazil. We're going down the path to dictatorship. We cannot do that. This is not the America we had.
2: Well, Bruce, as long as there are intelligent people like you offering us ideas on how we can adjust the status quo, our American democracy will no doubt stay on the right path. Well, that's it for this show. Thank you, Bruce Ackerman, for joining us today and giving us some unique concepts to ponder. And of course, thanks to our co-hosts Ed Larson and Jane Albrecht. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Stay safe, everyone. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening.
1: Kirkco Media, media for your mind.